Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast episode number 107. As dedicated dancers, we all share a common goal to level up our dancing over time. This goal inspires us to take weekly classes, invest in private lessons, and attend workshops and festivals. And to make sure we don't forget what we learned and we can go back and practice, we record tons and tons of videos. How many videos do you have saved on your phone right now? How often have you reviewed them and extracted the golden nuggets that you learned from those classes? How often do you record yourself during a solo practice session or with a partner? If these questions are making you feel seen right now, I have the solution for you to organize your dance journey. The Dancer's Training Journal 1.0, a Notion template to help you organize your dance videos and more. Notion is a cool and easy to use productivity app, and I've created a template for you that does the heavy lifting for you to have a system in place to organize all of your videos from your practices, private lessons, festivals, and more. To learn more about how to untap your dance potential with focus, accountability, and consistency with this dope resource, go to neokizomba.com slash templates. Again, neokizomba.com slash templates. Your Heart on Fire podcast, the podcast dedicated to inspiring dancers worldwide whose hearts have been touched by music and dance. The universal language of dance and music is spoken by many of us throughout the world. We want to motivate the dancer in you by sharing stories, insights, and ideas to enhance your journey. Join us now with your host, Charles Ogar. Hello, beautiful listeners. This is Charles just checking in before we start this actual podcast. This podcast was recorded back in April of 2021. So I just want to give you guys a heads up of some of the context that's going to be happening in the podcast. It is in the past, but it is still a super awesome podcast. Thank you for checking in and let's get started right into the show. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast coming at you with another weekly episode of intellectual dance content. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. And I'm really excited about our guest that we have here today. I've seen him around here and there. I, have we, I don't think we've met in person just yet. Yeah, I've definitely bumped into Christina a couple of times. But during the last year, during the pandemic, I joined this Facebook group called Zook Nerds. And I was like, hey, like there's other dance nerds out there. But of course, you're I guess it's not hard to find nerds in the Zook scene. But that group <laughs> was really, really nice, nicely run, nicely moderated. And this name kept popping up over and over again. I'm like, I got to talk to this guy. So after some messaging and some moving and some international travel, we've finally been able to uh, be in the same place at the same time to record the podcast. So thanks so much for being with me here today, Allison. Thank you so much, Charles. I It's a pleasure and an honor, you know, from a nerd to a nerd, we embrace ourselves <laughs> here and we got to be proud, you know, that that's why we mm -hmm. created Zook Nerds, because we needed a place to feel comfortable and safe and inclusive. Mm-hmm. In defense of nerds, if you take a look at some of the richest people in the world right now, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and who's the guy from Amazon? Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Him? All nerds. Yep. <laughs> truly. Truly. These are so all nerds that are now well, mega billionaires. So Well, we just got we just gotta keep checking our bank account, I guess, then. <laughs> That's the only thing we see. Definitely. Man. 
Mm-hmm, definitely. Before we get into dance, I actually started reading this one、uh, PDF that I want to recommend to you and also to the listeners. It's called the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. I'm not sure if you've heard of this guy. Not yet.、Uh, I started reading it. It's actually pretty, pretty cool to kind of like. He's like an investor that's super successful and has shared some of his advice and stuff like that. And Indian guy that has basically done really, really well for himself. And he has this one almanac that somebody has put together from his various tweets and postings and interviews and things of that nature. And it's been really, really insightful. One of the things that I took away from reading the book so far is the landscape that we're in now of how money is transferred and how wealth is transferred. And he was pulling in these two important aspects that if you want to leverage your time and your energy, focus on either code or focus on media, because those things can be replicated with very minimal effort. Versus,、right. if you get hired as a festival teacher or instructor or anything like that, you're essentially renting out your time. Even if you're getting paid a thousand dollars an hour, you still have to show up to do the work. But, like, take a look at, you know, Avatar or Star Wars or any movie that comes out. That movie gets played thousands of times. Rip- And they get paid off of each replication of the people coming to the movies. You know, if you think about code, Facebook is code, Uber is code, Amazon is code, and then all of the content creators that we have that have really blossomed, especially during the pandemic, from YouTube to podcasts. I just read that Joe Rogan is getting like 50 to 100 million dollars a year on his podcast.、What? Oh my God. But、How? again, a podcast can be replicated. Uh, times infinity if somebody wants to listen to it and he just has to do the work once. So it's really、yeah. helping me focus on, on what I want to do for like the next couple of years, especially as, as a dancepreneur. And you're also a dancepreneur as well. But、yeah. it's definitely something to be said about either creating code or creating media、uh, to help supplement your income, you know? Totally, because it, it also lives forever. You know, it,、mm. it lives forever. A dance class can be amazing, or a, a dance lecture can be amazing, and all of that. But if, if you cannot watch that again at your own time、mm-hmm. or pass it on to other people, then、mm-hmm. it's, it's basically dead media. It's、mm-hmm. not live media. You know, live、yeah. media, it's, it's just always there. Like, how often aren't we on you know, any platform, for example, like YouTube, and then I catch myself、mm-hmm. watching a video that Sparked my interest, and that video was uploaded like 11 years ago or eight years yeah, ago. Yeah, it's crazy, right? <laughs> and I'm like,、it's、wow,、crazy. this is still relatable, and I'm still learning、mm-hmm. from it, and it's great. So, you know, we, we just got to create this content, and you know, at some point, at some time, it will be valuable for somebody. Definitely. It's, it's really nice to see that YouTube serves up content from 11 years ago. It's crazy. And、I've, I found like, myself searching for like, premiere tutorials or XYZ on YouTube and five years ago, six years ago, eight years ago. And yeah, it's really awesome if you put up that, that content, you know? Yeah. Definitely. I've, I've been keeping that in mind as I've been uploading my YouTube videos and putting like, extra effort into like, my animations and things of that, it's,、like, of that nature. I'm like, it's okay. Five years ago, I'm going to look at this. For five years later, I'm going to look at this video and be like, that's still going to be able to withstand. Like the test of time because the dance isn't going to go anywhere, you know? Yeah. And especially when you choose the right platform to do your thing, you know, like I, I, 
we need to understand that each platform has its own pool, you know, mm -hmm. YouTube for longer views, mm -hmm. you know, whereas Instagram Definitely. and, you know, the, the TikToks and things like that are very much like are really quick, very quick. And the, the lifespan as well is very short. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You know, if you didn't see it on the day or maybe a couple of days later, like Instagram is not going <laughs> to probably won't up. see it. It's not nope. going to pull up to your, to your newsfeed if you only check Instagram not like a couple of days a week. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's Facts. Exactly. So you, you just need to know where to put your content. And that's why we created Zook Nerds on Facebook, because Facebook mm -hmm. has the Facebook groups platform where it brings people together and allows for it's conversation. It's definitely awesome for groups. Mm -hmm. It creates it's a conversation. It's definitely good to have conversation. Yeah. So 100%. If, if we want to have a conversation, we go at least... For now, because I, I mostly know Facebook, go to Facebook. But mm -hmm. I, I think there's other platforms like Discord and things like that that people have migrated to. Yeah, definitely. It's crazy. Yeah. I also read this one article about this one ch female chess player. She's like 25 years old and she earns six figures a year just streaming chess on her Twitch channel. Crazy, wow. man. Wow. So crazy. <laughs> one but feature yeah. on Facebook, and this will be the last thing I'll say, and then we'll actually start... <laughs> <laughs> conversation but i like these these it's talks cool. before because it's, it's this this podcast is going to be like a time capsule you know sure. so if you go back and listen to it it'll be like oh yeah this is what was happening back then one feature that i would love to see on facebook is the ability to download facebook comments because sometimes oh the comments God, that yes. you get on some posts are gold like really really nice thoughtful comments lots of good information but it gets buried in a post that also doesn't have a long shelf life. So I'm like, uh, I wish I could extract these things somehow outside of just like a screenshot, because it'd be cool if you could like take a post, create a blog post out of it or something like that. But that's one feature I wish existed, you know, and sometimes yeah. it's multiple comments under a post, you know? Yeah, totally. If we could like even organize Facebook groups better, you know, it's, it's gotten better mm -hmm. over the years, but it would be nice to actually organize like, through pages and menus where people can find mm. the content. You know, and I try my best be able to, filter to, to the add, content. Yeah, I try my best with Facebook groups to use hashtags where, you know, if uh, within the group, if the person go like mm -hmm. hashtag lives, then all the live posts pop up, mm. you know, like hashtag questions, hashtag something like that. So, you know, we try our best, but uh, I think, you know, as now a lot of us are very much online, I do hope that Facebook is listening and, and will give that to us. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be an awesome feature for them to. And it's not like they don't have the money or the resources to over to enable that feature, you know? Mm -mm. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's my, my tech spiel. But that's definitely a theme <laughs> that's like been bubbling in my spirit and that I feel very passionate about. And it's interesting to see the shift in the world of, of online media when it comes to instruction and entertainment and all kinds of stuff. So it's crazy. So, Allison, for people who are listening to the podcast who maybe aren't Zook dancers or Kizomba dancers and they haven't heard of you, the question I've been asking my guests is, can you give us a short answer of what your dance life looked like in 2019 before the pandemic hit? So what did that look like? Right. That's actually... Very, yeah, very emotional to say the least, but I think <laughs> it was the, it was like me exploring maybe a second 
a second journey in my career because previous mm. to that I had a different dance partner and then I had the, the traveling life and I did all the things. But then I went, you know, I'm just going to settle. And I wasn't traveling. I kind of like put that on the side and focus mostly on my community. And then I met mm. the amazing Christina Montoya and mm. that, you know, that fire of traveling again and, and going to places sparked. And I was like, okay, let's do this. So I was living in Melbourne, Australia back then. So I thought, okay, I'm going to move to the US. And then because Christina lives in Los Angeles, we're going to be able to travel together better and mm -hmm. do all the work. And that's what happened. I moved to the US in Washington, DC in June 2019, started doing the work in the US, living there in Washington, DC, going to places, still coming back to Australia and going to Asia like I normally do. But for me, 2019 was like the, let's say the rebirth. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say rebirth, but something like, okay, I'm going to do this again and I'm going to do it better mm -hmm. than I did the first time because mm -hmm. I, was, I was dumb and I young. And now I'm pretty sure I can do it a bit in a way that is going to be healthy and sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to, yes. you know, be so tired and stressed and, and, and dead all the time. So mm -hmm. 2019 was, was that moment that I was looking forward to having a second go at the professional traveling life. I hear you. Yeah. The, it's interesting as an artist and also looking at the potential of like a second go round at the travel life with the festivals and all that kind of stuff. A lot of people look at that lifestyle and like, oh, you're living the dream and it must be awesome to like hop around. And yes, like I don't want to come off as ungrateful for the opportunities uh, that I've had as far as dancing and teaching and traveling. But I think two of the key words that you said were like healthy and sustainable, you know, and sometimes if you aren't smart about the way that you invest your energy at a festival, you know, like sometimes you're not getting the proper amount of sleep, you're dancing, you're not taking care of your body, stretching, strength training, all those kind of things are important. Your diets as you're going from city to city, all those kind of things, it gets really hard to manage on the road, you know. And then there's also financial aspects, you know, depending on how you're pushing your privates and your rate for festivals and all that kind of stuff. You can be getting a lot of bookings, but bookings don't always equal dollars in the bank account, which I'm pretty sure that you're aware of. So, totally. yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge to chase that allure of like the fence, the festivals and things of that nature, but also still trying to kind of like take care of yourself, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I, I had a, a rock bottom moment in 2016 when I quit dance and I literally, mm. I, I went into corporate office working in investments and things like that because oh, wow. I, yeah, I, I had a, I had many years of pushing myself so hard that I actually burnt out, literally, literally mm. burnt out, could not think of dance, could not see dance, could not think of teaching. And it's so sad to think back because teaching for me is my air. You know, mm. being with the students hours and hours and hours without watching the time, that's my thing. Mm -hmm. And to, mm -hmm. to think that I, at one point, I left that behind, well, it's very sad to think. But at the same time, I'm grateful for that moment in my life because it taught me that I should reset and I should learn how to prioritize my health, my well-being. So then, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think if we can resume 
and summarize in one sentence that I always say is this. I was never 100% myself. So I felt like I never gave my students 100%. And I think mm. that's what burned me out. Because I was mm. always pushing, pushing, pushing. And I was not happy with my classes. I was not happy with my shows. I was not happy with my social dancing. Simply, now I understand. It was because I wasn't looking after myself. So mm -hmm. since that break, I did a lot of therapy and a lot of studies. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go back into dancing. But I'm going to go back into dancing, making sure that I only do things that I want to do, not things that I have to do. So mm -hmm. I always question myself, even if somebody asks me for a private lesson, I ask myself, do I want to teach this person or do I have exactly. to teach this person? And, you know, setting up, like, for example, now when I look at my ear, I set up the weekends that I'm not going to work. doesn't matter what money is mm -hmm. offered, uh, the time of the days that I'm not going to work, the days of the week that I'm not going to work and things like mm -hmm. that. And now I feel like everything that I do, every time that I'm out there, I am 100%. And that makes me yeah, happy to work every day. For sure. No, it's it's... Yeah, just because dance is your passion and it's your air and it could be the reason that you feel that you've been put on this earth doesn't mean that like you're like having a limited well of energy and inspiration to give all the time, you know, mm -hmm. and it's tricky as a dance teacher, you know, because each festival that you go to, you give so much, you know, you give your hours into the lesson plan, you give your out your energy to teach in an enthusiastic and entertaining and you want your students to learn as much as you can, you know, and then your training of yourself and judging your own improvement and things of that nature. And then if you're doing choreographies and shows, hours and hours choreographing and recording and reviewing footage and all that kind of stuff, like there's a lot of energy that goes into that. So if you aren't taking care of yourself and making sure that you're nourishing or recharging yourself, you can definitely get very burnt out. And I've, I felt similar feelings to that. Um, but luckily, 2020 has kind of been kind of like that break that a lot of us could have used to kind of like reassess life a little bit, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I think the, f the, the, shortest, the shortest show that I've ever completed and choreographed was the last one with with christina because we were choreographing rehearsing and cleaning up as we traveled so we would mm. go to a city and arrive a day early train for the whole day and that alone mm. the shortest was around maybe 30 35 hours our previous mm -hmm. ones i don't know would be at least 300 400 hours yeah you know so uh, to the shortest would be 40 hours. And that is something that we can never get paid back if we count mm -mm. the numbers. Because even if you perform every weekend and you charge, I don't know, $100, $200 for the show or even maybe $500 mm -hmm. if you are like at that level, yeah. you know, it, it just doesn't repay for the whole year of it traveling doesn't. and performing. It just doesn't. Because that's not only the hours in the studio. How much mm -hmm. was the costume worth? How much exactly. was the years and years and years of investment of classes and trainings and travels? You know, you just to pay for studio time. Exactly. We do this because we love it too much. And, you know, if, mm -hmm. we, if we were into the money, we would be actually Mark Zuckerberg and doing those things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's crazy because like it, it leads to the question of a starving artist versus a thriving artist, you yeah. know, and... Of course, you love dancing. You you would do it for free, 
But like going back to those two words that you said before of, of healthy and sustainable and financial health is definitely important as well, you know, but if you're not keeping track of how much time you're investing versus what you're getting in exchange for that time, then you have to make that adjustment, you know? And just like you mm -hmm. said before, like a dance class, a show or something like that, you put all that work into it to perform. But once you perform it a few times or something like that, like that doesn't necessarily kick back all the time that you invested into it from a financial aspect. But maybe your return, quote, unquote, return on investment could be the status, the personal satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, but of course, that's a balance. Everybody has to kind of figure out how much they're willing to invest for what they're seeking in their dance journeys. But yeah, yeah. it's but I, at the same I like time, what you're you saying. Know, a lot of people do think, oh, you know, if I if I don't do all of that, mm -hmm. I'm not going to make enough money. But I, I'll mm -hmm. tell you my experience for 10 years, mm -hmm. I did everything anytime can i have a lesson at 3 a.m i did it like i remember <laughs> I, I remember in washington dc in 2014 there was a student who said hey i cannot come to the workshops i cannot come to the party i travel uh, i work uh night shift in hospital or something mm. can i do a private lesson after the party at 3 a.m we did it that's something i wow. wouldn't do it I, I, I wouldn't do it today because I mean, like I did it and I felt really good at that moment. But then I, I was like, you mm. know what, was that me prioritizing my health? And it's not. And mm. I tell you for 10 years, I did all of that. And I lived, I literally lived coin by coin, dollar by dollar mm. on those 10 years. The moment <laughs> in 2017, when I got back after a year of break and then I reprioritized everything, I started saying no to things because they were below my minimum requirements. All of those things started happening. In two years, my life completely went from, you know, struggling mm. to then being able to actually plan ahead and take holidays and fly mm. my parents to, to Australia for the first time in 10 years because I didn't mm. have money and, mm -hmm. you know, and actually giving gifts to myself, which I never did. And, and that, that is all when I actually said no, not when I started, mm. when, not when I said yes. So when you say no and you prioritize yourself, people will prioritize you. When you exactly. don't prioritize yourself, then people are just going to push you around. Mm -hmm. Facts. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So you've been dropping little hints about your dance journey of a burnout, previous dance partnership, uh, what you did for 10 years and things of that nature. So let's go ahead and take this time and go back to the beginning of your dance journey. Um, for the people who are listening, just in case you haven't realized, Alison is a Brazilian zoo constructor and you're currently living in Australia right now? Well, at the moment I am in Melbourne, Australia, which is my home. Mm -hmm. But let's say for the last two, one and a half year and for the next one and a half year, I'm gonna be living in the United States in Washington, DC. Uh, but yeah, before nice. that and after that, Melbourne is my home and I'm here for an event that I run. I got you. And you are Brazilian. Yes, you were born in Brazil. Yeah. Brazilian, born and raised until I was 19 when I first went overseas, which was Australia. Mm, nice. So let's talk about growing up in Brazil, because I've had a few Brazilian zoo constructors here on the podcast uh, Paloma, uh, Jessica Lambden, Guy, uh, Larissa has been on here. And the 
my own personal research that I've done in Brazil, as you start to study the whole, the culture and going all the way back to the slave trade, Brazil is such a rich culture that's kind of unique in South America. So how Very was much. that growing up and how you got exposed to, to music and dance? Well, I grew up in a household that was very simple. We didn't have much. Uh, so our, our playtime was basically either play on the streets because I was kind of like a farm boy. So I grew up in the countryside. And anything that the, the only entertainment that we really have at home was music. My mom is mm. a music, music lover, and she always loved Brazilian bossa nova and all mm. the good old golden stuff. So luckily, I grew up with a lot of that. My mom didn't really play radio. So she always had mm. vinyls or, or the tapes or things exactly. like that. And, and that, that's basically the kind of music. So I'm very grateful for having that type of classical, uh, good, golden Brazilian music. And mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I come from a, a family that had, was brought up in two religions. Uh, Catholic religion, so we're kind of mm -hmm. like half Catholic and then half Afro-Brazilian spiritual, which is mm. called Umbanda, which is kind of like a like a an a, a mix of like Catholicism with spiritualism with African gods and things like that. So with mm -hmm. that, I also grew up with a lot of drumming, drumming mm. and singing, drumming and singing, drumming and singing. So it's a very strange um, background to grow up with, not a normal household. But mm -hmm. yeah, the, so to me, the exposure to very beautiful golden voices and music and beautiful lyrics, plus all those drummings, I feel like when I dance, like if I'm dancing with energy, I'm very connected to the percussion in the music. Mm -hmm. But if I'm dancing very chill and gentle, I find that I'm very much in the in the voices, in the harmony and things mm. like that. So every time I look back, I think, oh my God, I gotta thank my parents so much for the gift they gave me growing up to like plant this knowledge and knowledge into yeah, my definitely. body. Uh, that helps me today as an answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I did this one video on the origins of different partner dances from across the world because I wanted to see like what the origins had in common. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you start to study different partner dances from Kizomba, Brazilian Zouk, Tango, Cumbia, Salsa, Lindy Hop, all the, the popular partner dances that we have today, you, you hear about African roots a lot, you know, mm -hmm. totally. and obviously through the Atlantic slave trade, Europeans were mixed and were traveling between the different hotspots for colonialism. And I feel like one thing that I realized was there were people living in these places before the Europeans came and before the Africans came. So it's a combination of African, European and indigenous mm -hmm. peoples that were there. But typically you don't hear about those indigenous people a lot, yeah. but every place had them like the Native Americans here in the US. There were the Bantu region. They had descendants there in Angola before Portugal came. And I'm pretty sure Brazil and South Africa, South um, America had indigenous tribes and things of that nature before the Africans and Europeans came. So it's yes. a very interesting hotspot of culture from those three main sources that kind of gave birth to different partner dances from across the world, which is 
pretty phenomenal if you take a step back and start to think about it, especially when you fast forward into today. You know, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, even Lambada uh, and a lot of other Brazilian dance styles, they have some some connection. You know, a couple of generations back with some Brazilian folk indigenous dances. Mm. You know, so like it, it's all connected. Like you said, you know, it's a mix of the European with the African, with the indigenous, and then mm -hmm. it brings to where we are right now. Yeah, it's really crazy to, to think of those things and, and to fast forward. So uh, going back to your upbringing, uh, you had this rich upbringing. Uh, you mentioned the lyrics that from the songs that your mom used to play and, and the drums. So were you playing the drums or were you more of a dancer? How did you expose to, to dancing? Uh, to be honest, uh, I, I was very much into music, but never dancing, really. I, I was a very much of a loner growing up. Mm -hmm. And every now and then I, I would try to jump in into like and make friends when mm -hmm. I saw people doing activities. So back then I do remember dancing, uh, jump, uh, jumping in with friends to do some like dance routines from whatever was, you know, hot in that summer, because yeah. in Brazil, there's Makes always this, the summer dances that everybody learns and we mm. dance on the beach or we dance at a barbecue mm -hmm. or something like that. I tried, but I always, I was never a natural dancer. So I always, fell behind and I didn't really end up learning the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but how I actually came into dance eventually was after when, when I was 13, I had um, emergency surgery because I had a stomach ulcer that burst. Mm -hmm. So basically I went to hospital and within hours they had to cut me open and stitch me up because I, mm -hmm. I could die in a couple of hours. And my best friend at the time, he knew I was going through like a lot of anxiety and depression because of bullying in school and all of those things mm -hmm. that, I, that I was going through. And my, my parents couldn't do much because they were just working so much and they couldn't uh, help me. But my, my best friend's mom at that time was taking dance classes and sometimes taking my best friend to dance classes. Mm. And she said, look, you're going to come to dance classes with us. And I'm like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to because I'm not a dancer. I don't like dancing. Dancing is not for me. Anyway, thank God, you know, she persisted and she literally used to come to my house, pick me up, drag me out of my house without me actually wanting to and take me to dance classes. And she paid for my dance classes. She paid for my dance shoes. Wow. And first, second, third week, I was hating it so much. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so bad at this. I don't want to be here. Why, why am mm -hmm. I doing this? You know, like, I just want to be somewhere else. But what dance, what dances were you learning? It was all together because when you go to a Brazilian dance school, you go to a dance mm -hmm. class and the mm -hmm. teacher teaches you the dance that is in his plan. You know, like it's kind of like, I guess, ballroom dance. You go and you learn Latin. And on that mm. day, you're going to do cha-cha and you're going to do jive. And the next week you start with a jive warm up, but then you move to rumba kind of mm. that way. You, you don't I get gotcha. to choose. <laughs> yeah, you don't get to choose. I hear you. So then, um, yeah, I mean, after about, I think, closer to two months, that's when I started looking forward to going. Like I actually started feeling like going. But not because of the dance. I still felt like very crap at it. And I still knew mm -hmm. I was not good at it. 
But for the first time in my life, I felt like people were not judging or bullying me. Mm. Because all throughout school, all th- my neighborhood, everywhere, I never felt welcomed. Yeah. And in my dance school, with that dance family, it was the first time I felt like everybody just likes each other and nobody's judging nobody for nothing. That's mm. what made me fall in love with dance first. You know, that feeling, of awesome. in, that feeling of inclusiveness. And I'm like, oh, I matter. And people don't dislike me here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then obviously dancing became a passion and a passion. And uh, three months later, the owners of the school, they, they offered me a half scholarship. They're like, wow, you know, like we, we've seen so much. You want to be here all the time. So we want to offer you like extra classes and you still pay. But then after six months, like from the start, on the sixth, seventh month, they said, you know what? We just want you here. We, we just want you to allow you to come here anytime, any day, and you don't have to pay anymore. But now you have wow. some duties. So then they gave me a scholarship. But then now I was part of the crew. So I, I had to do a, certain things. Like I had to be there mm-hmm. early. I had to partner people or, or help mm-hmm. them out if they missed a class set up for parties, clean up after parties. And what mm-hmm. we call in Brazil, bolsista, which is like mm-hmm. the intern kind of thing. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's how I started. Nice. And do you remember the name of the dance school? Yes. Asukar. Because uh, my, my teacher, he was actually Chilean to Brazil with his family, very young age. And so he's like Chilean, Brazilian. And Asukar is like an... Uh, uh, a happy, uh, oh God, please, all the Latin people, excuse me here. But from what <laughs> I remember, <laughs> a sucker is something like happy, it's cheerful. You know, like Celia Cruz would always say a sucker in, in her music and things like that. Mm-hmm, so initially, mm-hmm. he learned everything, but the school was very much about pushing Cuban salsa. So okay, like in, in Brazil, we learn samba de gafieira, bolero, forró, soltinho. Those are the four mm-hmm. core dance styles. Each school has a fifth or a sixth that is more related to what the owners love. And my fifth was Cuban salsa and seven, uh, sixth would be like merengue. So mm, the school you. actually called Azucar, A-Z-U-K-A-R. C-A-R. Yes, C-A-R, C-A-R is you. the original uh, spelling, exactly. but he changed K-A-R because of branding. <laughs> there were mm-hmm. already too many other businesses with, with C-A-R. So yeah, Azucar Estudio de Dança in São José dos Campos, which is São Paulo state, but not São Paulo city. It's like 50 minutes from the center of the city in another uh, more like smaller town. Yeah. So I speak Spanish oh, and okay. Azucar definitely has that definition that you said with especially with Celia Cruz the way she used it in her songs mm-hmm. and I think the other translation is sugar yes like necesito azúcar para mi café like si. I need sugar with my coffee <laughs> yes. so um yeah uh the, the Latin language is a beautiful language I'm fluent in Spanish I'm actually working on my French now but oh, I've wow. been speaking Spanish for like the past 15 years so wow okay so my first part for- of dance was salsa so <laughs> That helped me uh, learn my salsa. So thanks for the clarification for everybody who was listening and didn't get my explanation properly. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So that's awesome. I remember talking to William, William Testeda, Teixeira, and he talked about, the, again, the dance school that kind of like took him in and 
showed him in scholarship. So it's, it's interesting to hear about this culture of dance schools and classes and things like that in Brazil, because I definitely feel like that grooms you to a higher standard of dancing just because there's such an environment there to foster it, you know? Whereas, as you know, here in the U.S., if you want to take classes when you're younger, it's not that common to take it as a teenager or and even as an adult, you have to find out about it because it's still kind of underground, you know? Yeah. A lot of people do go because of a family member or the parents. Like uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the younger generation that I know now, the either Zuckers or even younger people in Brazil uh, who are not teachers yet, I do always ask, I say, hey, how did you get into this? And most is because of the parents. The, the parents mm -hmm. actually danced. So now there's a new generation of uh, dancers that uh, were brought to the schools by the parents, which is great. Mm -hmm. You know, like all these kids yeah. that we see now turning up and just waiting for the parents on the side of the class, you know, keep, yeah. keep, keep inspiring them and bringing them to the dance floor if the parents feel comfortable enough, you know, to have a boogie and to shake a little bit. And hopefully mm -hmm. in a couple of years, they're going to go like, hey, dad, mom, you know, can I can I join the classes too? And, mm -hmm. and you're not you're not even going to have to tell them they're just going to want to do it. Exactly. Definitely. Uh, hearing you talk about the the family aspects of the partner dancing, especially being growing up and doing it as a family. It reminded me in the video that I made about the origins of the partner dances. Uh, I talked about how there's kind of two different spheres of partner dancing. There's kind of like the cultural street side where it's more of a family thing in the backyard with mom, dad, aunties and uncles, cousins, all those kind of things, you know? Yeah. And then on the other side, we have the salon, mm -hmm. the dance schools and the studios and things of that nature. I don't know where I got that Brazilian word from. It just came out, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, because they say dance at salon. Mm -hmm, exactly. Dance at it salon. It just came out. <laughs> Good. But it wasn't like a conscious thing. <laughs> Man, you've been practicing. You've been talking to a lot of Brazilians, I guess. So I've been talking to some Brazilians. <laughs> and so I find Brazil very interesting because it seems to be a combination of both. The family aspect of it, because like if you talk about bachata or kizomba, you have the cultural fam family aspects of it, but there's no dance studios that are really uh, a part of that process. Yeah. And obviously you have other dances like here in the U.S. where it's strictly studio like this, like there's not really like a lot of, I guess, American born people who are doing partner dances. Yeah, I would assume so. And with Brazil, it seems to be like a strong cultural identity, plus this strong presence in the studio that are kind of going hand in hand, which is interesting to observe. Yeah, you know, a lot of families, they grow up with some sort of dancing. Like, even though in my house, I was never really inspired to become a dancer or anything like that. My dad and my mom can dance. And every now and then, you know, whenever there was a wedding and the alcohol mm. was flowing... Suddenly, I would see my parents' partner dancing, and I'm like, damn, I didn't know they could do this. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I knew my mom, she did some dancing when she was like a teenager, because in Sao Paulo, they, they, they have samba hockey. Samba hockey is like samba rock. So that, that's the spelling, samba rock. In, in Brazil, we have multiple types of samba music and samba dance. So samba hockey, mm -hmm. imagine a very, very tricky Cuban salsa. Very, very mm -hmm. tricky. All about the tangling and the untangling. 
So if anybody looks it up on YouTube, you're going to find Samba Rock from Sao Paulo. If you can send me a video, I can put that in the show notes so people can check that out. Yes, I will. So Samba Rock uh, is, is something that my mom grew up dancing. And yeah, so like one of the styles most people think that Brazilians can dance everywhere is Samba because it's what Brazilian people are known for because of the samba parades and, you know, mm -hmm. the beautiful girls and things like that mm -hmm. and the drumming. But when you actually go to family barbecues or weddings or go to the beach or something like that, people can dance forró. Forró is kind of like our very simplified version of a Cuban salsa, you know, mm -hmm. so that, that's what everybody can dance and that's what my parents can dance. So if anything, most families have a little bit of forró in the dance and then a little bit of samba but you know just because the music play and you kind of like you shake your feet and shake mm -hmm. your booty very mm -hmm. very simple so something like that but yeah mm -hmm. forró is the, the the big thing and forró has an interesting name because it actually comes from the idea of like for all so if you look up i don't remember the story exactly but the name mm -hmm. grew because there were a lot of foreigners coming to Brazil, like Americans coming to Brazil, and they're like, oh, what's mm -hmm. this dance? And then there was something about like, this dance is for all. And then from for all, we just went into for all. Um, mm. And it, it's what like I first fell in love with was for all. And then Cuban salsa, mm. Zouk was almost last. Interesting. So from a historical nerd perspective, it's interesting because I know obviously samba is one of the most popular part, uh, popular dances in Brazil, which is only one letter different from the traditional dance in Angola of semba, which is S-E-M-B-A. Yeah. So yeah. there's definitely some close roots between those two. But Angola was also a Portuguese colony. Brazil was a Portuguese colony. So there has to be like even the word Jinga between both. Uh, mm. countries has kind of like similar connotations of that particular word. And it's interesting to hear you talk about the Cuban aspect in Brazil. I haven't heard of that before because Fidel Castro sent, I don't know, tens and thousands of troops to help Angola uh, win their independence. And so there are Semba songs that have Cuban salsa in them. And there's actually a, a Cuban son move where you know, where um, the lead is kind of like on one leg doing like a pistol squat and he's like wow. leaning back and the oh, lady right. is holding his yeah, hand yeah. and that. walking around. Yeah, yeah. That move exists in Semba and it also exists in Cuban son yeah. or Cuban salsa. So it's interesting to see the the intermingling of these mm -hmm. two. Uh, and then if you think about it, Cuban salsa like obviously has African roots, right? Mm -hmm. So in the video, I, I keep going back to this video, but I, I came up with this term of intercontinental uh, African diasporic art forms. So art forms that were created via the African diaspora and Cuban salsa is one of those. So slavery trans happened, Cuban salsa was born and then it goes back to the motherland, i.e. Angola, i.e. Brazil, and influences and creates other versions yeah. of the dance. So mm -hmm. Africans left to come Cuba, created music, and then music came back. 
So yeah. like there's a cycle of intercontinental inspiration and influence from the African diasporic art forms, which I know is a mouthful, but it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's very fascinating to me. So it's thank you for sharing the, the Cuban aspect of, of that. I didn't know. Yeah. So basically for her uh, as a music style, it doesn't really remember anything about salsa, I, I, I think. Mm -hmm. But because it was mostly a, f a close, very, very close hold dance where you don't do any open or any turns. But then mm -hmm. with the traveling between the north of the Brazilian people, with the, the South America countries in the north, the Venezuela mm -hmm. and those countries there, mm -hmm. the Brazilian people started going like, hey, I can dance and turn and I can dance and do things. <laughs> so like Brazilians started copying the Latinos uh, that mm. were already doing turns and then they put that into into the forho so as far mm -hmm. as i know that that's how like forho became something that if you don't know and if you turn off the music you could almost go like i think they're doing mm. cuban but they could be doing forho but they could be doing yeah. cuban <laughs> Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah. So it's it's awesome to learn about the historical roots uh, that Angola and Brazil have in common as far as Brazilian Zouk and Kizomba. Hmm. And then now fast forward to today and now like urban kids and Brazilian Zouk are starting to kind of like mingle with music and dancers and training. So it's like, I don't know, I, I just see this cool full circle that's happening again between yeah. the new age and then also like the historical roots of the dance, which is which is fascinating because if you think about it, like all part of dancing can be derived back to the the African slave trade. So it's yeah. just crazy to see what has been created since then and how that, um, I guess, tree of inspiration has continued into today. Yeah. And another interesting fact is that <laughs> Brazilians and Angolans, they have more of a similar accent than Brazilians, Angolans, and the Portuguese. Mm. So, like, I can talk so much more, like, relaxed and easy with somebody from Angola speaking Brazilian Portuguese really? than with somebody who is European Portuguese from Portugal. Like, Brazilians... Wow, and, I did not know that. So, Brazilians and the Portuguese, they kind of struggle to understand each other. Mm -hmm. But Brazilians and Angolans, we're like, yeah, no problem. Some words are different, but the accent mm -hmm. is actually so similar and so different from, from the Portugal. Yeah. Fascinating. So like when, fascinating. We, when we hear Kizomba or music mm -hmm. like that, we, we understand almost everything. But then if we don't understand, we're like, oh, I think that's, that's a different one. <laughs> yeah. A different <laughs> Which dialect is crazy. or something. Ah, you're sharing such good information. So <laughs> I went to my first Brazilian Zouk Festival. It was with Laura Rivas Can Canada Zouk Congress 2019. That was my first Brazilian Zouk Congress. And Jaime Rocha was there and Renata was there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I've been around Brazilians enough to know, like Brazilian Zouk dancers to know, like these people are like important people. And they started playing like Anselmo Ralph and yeah. now Metoka and things of that nature. I'm like, what? Like you guys are dancing to like old school ghetto zook. And everybody was like so happy because of the nostalgia that the music brought. But when I was first exposed to, I'm, I'm not of Palop descent or anything like that. But when I first got exposed to Kizomba, I saw how the Palop people, the Angolan people reacted when they heard these old school ghetto zook songs, you know? So now you have the same music that is inspiring a similar feeling of nostalgia 
but is being expressed differently because they come from two different geographic regions, you know? Mm -hmm. So, man, it's yeah. crazy. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, so many connections that we, we find yeah. out just by talking to each other. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is why I'm so glad we're doing the podcast because other people will listen to this and now it's less like this is this or this needs to be like this and it's like actually if you start studying the roots there's so much intermingling and sharing and crossover and all that kind of stuff so there really isn't anything that's quote unquote pure mm -hmm. you know totally um, and nobody so, owns anything that's also important exactly. to understand <laughs> mm -hmm. i want to go back to your dance journey i know we got excited on some more historical nerdy stuff But you're at the, the Salau, you're taking, you got the tuition, uh, you don't have to pay anymore. Mm. So how did that transform your relationship with dance? And I guess at some point you actually started to teach, I would assume. Well, yes and no and maybe. Mm -hmm. So I'll try to <laughs> I'll try to make sure as short as possible because I talk a lot. Sure. Um, so I got really passionate about it and I grew up in a very, very um, self-taught and uh, sharing knowledge family. My, my, both my parents always made us learn how to do anything and everything. Uh, even from like, I, I could completely disassemble my entire bicycle and a lot of things and put them together. So when I, when I went into dancing, For me, that 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 aspect of you know deconstructing and constructing things, and then looking at how people understand and how people learn, I fell in love. I fell in love so much, mm. but my body and my brain didn't communicate very well. So my progress in dance was very slow. But mm -hmm. I always always loved, and I spent like literally every free time that I had, I would go straight to the dance school even though the classes were not on i would just literally just sit down there and maybe dance and dance in front of the mirror or something like that some nights the party would finish so late on mm. saturday and on sunday we had training every day uh, every sunday from like 8 a.m to 6 p.m for, oh, wow, for the for the crew so mm -hmm. 4 a.m finish the party i'm like guys i'm gonna sleep here because i didn't have a car I was like 15 16. <laughs> So I just slept in the couch, eight o'clock in the morning, we're back there at training. So I, I did all of that, but I didn't really teach. I, by the time I, st I started assisting, that's when I went to Australia. So I was mm. under training to become an instructor, uh, still assisting. And I went to Australia because um, my cousin wanted to go and he didn't want to go alone. And he had some big savings and he said, look, I know you can't afford this, but I don't want to go alone. Um, I, I really need family with me. I'll pay for you. You come with me. Mm -hmm. And then when you get there, you find an, a job and you pay me back. So I did that. Mm -hmm. And it was meant to be a three months English course to go and come back because I, I had never studied English until then. So mm -hmm. then I went there and I was so excited because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get to dance salsa in Australia. And I knew that salsa in Australia could uh, like they had great teachers so my first day i went to salsa club second day salsa club and every day i was going to every salsa club then i met two of the teachers the main teachers in town and the owners of the biggest school there and they were tangueros and salseros who used to go to to argentina every year to mm. you know learn more tango but 
in Argentina, in the Tango Congresses, they also have Samba de Gafiera classes by the Brazilian teachers who come to Argentina to learn tango. So they came to me and they said, hey, do you know any Samba de Gafiera? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I can dance. I, uh, and they're mm -hmm. like, can you teach us? I'm like, no, I'm not a teacher, but I, I can help. I can show you some stuff, you know, like I've been assisting and I've been helping out like this. And they were like, okay, done. For how long? How long? I, I don't care how long you're here. Uh, we want a lesson every week. We're going to pay you. And we, we're just going to work this out. Even though you cannot teach, we'll figure, wow. we'll figure a way to learn from you. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started. Like my first job wow. as a teacher was a paid job by somebody who is just so passionate about <laughs> Brazilian dancing that no matter mm -hmm. how hard it was going to be to understand somebody who was learning English for three weeks only, mm -hmm. um, they're like, look, we will manage Portuguese, Spanish, English, some way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So my first job as a teacher, let's say, it was during private lessons doing that. And then after, mm -hmm. after a couple of months, Maybe like six months because I decided to stay and I was like, I'll never go back unless they kick me out of this country because I fell in love with Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they after about six months when I was speaking English better, they're like, hey, let's open a class where we'll teach, but you kind of teach with us until you get comfortable enough. So then you can actually take your own classes because we really want you to be part of our school and we want you to bring all the Brazilian dance styles that you can. Mm hmm. What attracted you to Australia that was different from Brazil? Boy, it's so different. Uh, the first thing, and I tell this story to everybody, I landed mm -hmm. and I went to my friend's place and they're like, hey, let's go to the city. And I'm like, okay, great. Let's go to the city. Okay, let's take the bus. It would be like a 25 minutes walk or a five minutes by bus. They're like, let's take the bus. I'm like, okay, cool. And they're like, okay, um, so enter the bus. I entered the bus and we just sat down. At that moment, my computer brain just froze. <laughs> I was because like, I'm pretty sure the public transportation in Brazil is like jam-packed, yeah? Not just that. But here's mm -hmm. the, the second thing. We sat down and I didn't have to see anybody to pay my ticket. And I didn't have to talk to anybody to pay my ticket. And nobody chased me for my ticket. Mm. Right? So just a little bit of context here for everybody listening. For sure. Brazilian buses, as soon as you enter, there's a turnstile. So there's a bus driver and there's somebody to, that you pay the ticket for. Mm -hmm. And unless you pay the ticket and you go through the turnstile, you're not allowed in the bus. Basically. Mm. I enter the bus in Australia. I sit down and I'm like looking as if I'm doing something wrong. I'm like, guys, uh, we have to pay the ticket. And they're like, no, no, no. I, I just tap the card. I'm like, yeah, but mm. what do you mean? Like, no, I tapped it for you. I already paid for you. And then I was like, yeah, but where's the turnstile? Uh, like, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to get in trouble. And they're like, Alison, don't worry about it. You're now in Australia. And here, this is how things work. People trust you. Mm. They trust you that you're going to do the right thing. And everybody's always going to trust you. And to me, that was a very foreign concept because I was brought up in, 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 the, opposite. in the opposite culture. And not to say that Brazilians aren't trustful or something like that, but there's... Yeah. there's there's, there's always barriers to, mm. that you have to go through to prove that you've completed the steps that you're supposed to complete. It's like you're guilty until proven innocent versus innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> exactly. So that mm -hmm. is the story that I tell everybody. On that day, something, I don't know what, 
but something inside made me feel like, oh, is this, is this like the place that I've always felt like didn't exist and that couldn't exist? Mm. And from then on, I just fell in love more and more and more with things, obviously missing Brazil every day. Because sure. it, it's such a different culture and many things we, we feel like just packing our bags and going home because we, we miss a lot of things. But that mm -hmm. gave me that, that glimpse of, wow, if, if this is what I'm feeling in the bus, I wonder mm. what I'm going to feel when I'm here for three months or six months or 12 exactly. months. And, you know, that, that gut instinct was right because, uh, yeah, everything else after that, I just kept on falling in love. The people are very mm. much like the Brazilian people, very happy, very lively, very uh, outdoors, music, not a lot of dancing, but still, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they, they like to party. So, yeah, I got you. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely on my list to, to visit Australia. Uh, I know it's a little bit of a trek from from the US, but it's definitely <laughs> on my list of places to to visit. Very long flight, 15 hours mm -hmm. straight from from LAX. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned before that you're in Melbourne now yes. and you're talking about a story of how you started. And now you mentioned an event that you're running in Melbourne. So. Obviously, you love this so much that you continue to work with these people. And did mm -hmm. that lead the track to you growing some roots and teaching more to the point where it became a, an event? Yeah. So I, for 10 years, I never wanted to run an event. And I was living actually in Perth, Australia, which is on the West Coast, not in mm -hmm. Melbourne, which is more towards the East Coast. So when I quit dancing, I moved to Melbourne and then I restarted my life, like I mentioned before. And with that, there's a lot of values and principles that I relearned about myself that I had lost or I had buried. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them was like, why do I dance? And that came through my mind when I was reading a book from, by Simon Sinek that is like starts with why. Mm -hmm. So I read that book and I was like, why do I dance? Why? Why do I love dancing? Why do I teach? And then it just realized, I just realized, well, because dance literally saved my life. Like I said before, mm -hmm. I, I went through surgery and I don't think that I would be alive or at least not in a very healthy condition if I hadn't mm -hmm. started dancing. Because really, like the anxieties, the depressions and all of those things that mm -hmm. I grew up with was, were too, too, too much to cope without something like that. Exactly. So my, my entire life, I always thought, you know, I just wish I didn't have to get paid to, to teach dance because I just want to change people's lives. And that's where Brazuki, my event, came. Because one day I thought, you know what? Everybody always asked me to organize an event. Now I'm living in Melbourne. I'm starting my life in Melbourne. And I, you know, I would love to do something for the community here. Mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't have like a Brazilian dance festival in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, there's no way I would feel financially happy to organize an event. Because it's a whole year work. And let's yeah, be honest, definitely. there's no event that makes enough to pay somebody to run an oh, event for, for all the hours. Year. <laughs> exactly. And not even a team. So then I thought, sure. you know what? I'm going to do this event as a not-for-profit and I'm going to raise all the profits from this event to donate to dance projects back in Brazil to start with and then around the world. That, mm -hmm. that was my dream. So then I founded Brazuki as a not-for-profit event that... It runs as a dance festival, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. Competitions, workshops, parties, DJs, masterclasses, all of it. Mm -hmm. But the entire event 
people are coming together and they pay a ticket knowing that part of that money is actually going to go to save people from possibly not having a good life and hopefully mm-hmm. becoming the next Brazilian dance star or whatever dance mm-hmm. star. So that, that's what it is, Brazuki, to me. You know, it's an event that I don't feel like I ever work for. Even though some, mm-hmm. some days I'm like 10 hours straight in front of the computer just doing work for it. Because all of us are volunteers. All of the mm-hmm. directors, all of the crew, we're all volunteers. Uh, obviously, the artists get paid, DJs and venue and things like that. But even then, they help out. They go like, look, I know this is Brazuki and I know you don't make a dollar from it. So I'm going to give you a better rate or I'm mm-hmm. going to give you something extra or something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a beautiful event that now that Australia has opened up and allowed to, to, for us to do safe events. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're going to be, we're going to be running our first Brazuki since the COVID, which was actually Braz- the, the Brazuki. The last one that we ran was the weekend before everything exploded worldwide. Mm. So we were like officially the last Brazilian dance festival that ran without complications. Other ones mm-hmm. ran after us, but they had some yes. complications. Uh, but we were the last one after complications. And yeah, that's why I made all this leap of coming to Australia, locking, locking myself up in quarantine. Mm-hmm. And now um, I'm here in Melbourne. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure we could go down a whole rabbit trail, a rabbit trail of being a dance <laughs> organizer and things of that nature. Maybe that could totally. be another podcast in the future. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your dance journey as a teacher. Like you said, you were a part of the Brazilian dance festival circuit a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to touch a little bit on that and then maybe talk a little bit about Zook Nerds after that. Yes. So, well, Brazilian dance festival has always been my passion and it's something that I love so much to do. And when I'm in this Brazilian dance community, I just feel so so happy and i it's something that i am proud of because as a brazilian zook teacher we always trying to f- make everybody feel welcomed and make everybody feel like you know when you come to a zook event you see that the teachers be among themselves they love each other and they hang out with each other and hopefully you feel that am- amongst also all the dancers mm-hmm. and that that to me was a huge inspiration to to build to build an event, even though I never wanted to build one later, I thought if I'm going to build, it's going to be something that has, has that, that vibe of everybody mm-hmm. feeling like they, they belong in there together and there's no, no divisions, basically. Yeah. And Zook Nerds was a, a big dream that I had in a nutshell. I mean, in a very summarized version, very, very often. And I know you're going to uh, agree with this and everybody who is a dance mm-hmm. teacher or a dance nerd is going to agree with this. We often have very, very nerdy conversations, sometimes after the party, five o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning in the hotel Facts. lobby. someone's hotel room (laughs) and we're like breaking down techniques and like in Mm -hmm. the corridor we're doing moves and we're like hey how about this hey how about that and that conversation sometimes go for hours so i for years and years i thought guys we need to be documenting this thing (laughs) we need to document this thing because every time sometimes the conversation wasn't even with me and mm-hmm. I would just sit down and I watch people talk for like two hours. Mm-hmm. And the party's going, the DJs are smashing the main room. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't care. 
I, I want to be here because I'm learning so much just by watching or learning these people talk about something. Mm -hmm. So for many years, I wanted to document that. Obviously, never knew how to do it or a way to do it. Pandemic mm -hmm. hit. And I was like, you know what? We need to. And okay, so pandemic hit. And I was having those kind of conversations still, but like on WhatsApp groups or, or mm. Zoom calls or mm -hmm. whatever. And then I thought, hey, how about if we do this in a video podcast version where we meet once a week and we just talk about things? And that's how Zuknerd started. I just wanted nice. those conversations to be documented and shared because I was just always thinking about, you know, how valuable would it be if other people could hear all of those things that we talk and they're not part of a class mm -hmm. they're just things that come out of us and we don't even think or mean to say but then gold gold just drops mm -hmm. you know every five <laughs> minutes and even sometimes the next day you you go like oh man i wish i wrote all of this before i went to sleep mm -hmm. or something like that so that that's the idea of zook nerds zook nerds started from that but then it grew into something much bigger now it's a community mm -hmm. of, of not just where we do live videos or live interviews with with artists with community builders with djs with mm -hmm. people from all over the world but it, it also grew to be a place where everybody and everybody can feel comfortable to ask questions and to get answers mm -hmm. and to start conversations where they don't feel judged, you know, and a lot mm -hmm. of people don't really participate actively, but you can see in the stats that people are there and they exactly. are contributing and they are at least reading, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that, that's the beautiful thing about Zucknerds. It's creating this one place through the Facebook groups platform where we have interviews uh, where people can watch, but people can also talk amongst themselves anytime any day which is the thing that facebook like uh, i mean youtube lacks kind of 100 mm -hmm. you know you can follow some sort of idea but there's no place to but it's talk. not real time conversation yeah there's no place to talk and so i think that was the perfect marriage there and you know in the future we can grow into bigger things but right now this is where we're at and it's going really well right i think this week we hit 1500 members so that's, awesome. that's great. That's amazing. I never, I never thought that would happen. You know, like the first couple of months when we hit like 500, 600, I was like, oh my God. Like some people were like asking me, Alison, this, this actually makes me wonder how many people out there dance Zook in the world. Mm -hmm. Because just in this group, which is not a mainstream group by any means, mm -hmm. it's more of a niche nerdy group. Exactly. There's already 1,500 people. How about all of the other ones that don't identify with the nerdiness of Zook? Exactly. Yeah. So makes me wonder how big could this be? Part of your same inspiration you had for Zook Nerds is part of, the part of the reason why we have this podcast right now, because we have so much uh, information and knowledge that needs to be put out. And I think the last time I checked, this year alone, the podcast has been listened to in like uh, 60 plus countries. And wow. again, it's, it's kind of difficult because obviously like they're not leaving comments and all this kind of stuff. But when you yeah. log into Spotify and you check the stats and you're seeing people that are listening to the shows, it's like, whoa, this is interesting. <laughs> you know, even though it's just me and you here talking right now, but uh, the documentation is so important. And it, I think a lot of us in a lot of different dance scenes are trying to honor the roots 
and make sure that the roots don't get forgotten as we start to get into all of so much fusion that's happening now. Yeah. And documenting those conversations from the OGs of the different dance scenes is something mm -hmm. that's really, really nice. Like, hey, you're an OG of a dance. Let's get on a video call. Or let's do a podcast and you can just talk your head off for two hours, you know, and yeah. that's a time capsule. And, you know, that's something that could be passed down that can be like, hey, this is if you're going to become a dance instructor, you should listen to this podcast because this person shared X, Y, Z, you know. Yeah. And that's something we've decided to do from this year onwards. So last year we did about six months of random topics that were just mm. basically popped on a weekly basis. And then I thought, okay, you know, uh, the world is starting to go back into, you know, opening communities and doing things like that. Why don't we do series where we talk about different type of topics on a weekly basis so people can continue turning up every week if that's, you know, the cup of tea. So mm -hmm. now we are ending our community building series where, mm -hmm. whereas before we were, organ we were sorry, we were inviting mostly like technical teachers who had a lot mm -hmm. to offer. This time we invited community builders, people mm -hmm. who are often unknown Mm -hmm. worldwide who have done an amazing job at building real successful sustainable inclusive communities and that's what we've been doing so we've doing we've done now eight episodes and every week we bring somebody from asia europe australia new zealand mm -hmm. north america brazil anywhere uh, to share their experience and hopefully anybody who is about to start a community or about to restart a community or needs mm -hmm. a refresh in the community can learn mm -hmm. a lot from all of those people around the world. So, yeah. And then the next one will go into like building curriculums for your students. And then mm -hmm. in the future, we're going to talk about maybe competitions and choreographies. So, yeah, every mm -hmm. series will be maybe five or 10 episodes of like one topic, but every week with different guests. That's awesome. So, if you guys are dabbling in Zook, or not a part of that group already. I'm pretty sure they can just search Facebook Zook Nerds yes. and they'll be able to find the group and they can join. Yeah, Zook Nerds has one word. So Z-O-U-K-N-E-R-D-S has one word. You, mm -hmm. you, you request, you answer a few questions just mm -hmm. to make sure that you are nerdy enough. You know, we, mm -hmm. we would just ask, you know, like, <laughs> are you a Zook dancer? Do you consider yourself a Zook nerd? And then we ask mm -hmm. where you heard it where you heard about us just so we know you know where you guys are all coming from and um mm -hmm. you know who, who should we thank basically exactly like when, whenever people go like hey you know charles recommended charles recommended charles recommended i'll go in mm -hmm. and send a message to charles and they'll go like man yeah thank you so much for you know recommending because you know like you're helping this community to come together basically so yeah exactly that's awesome uh, i've been taking a part of it and even though like most of my experiences in the KISS part mm. of it, um, I started uh, doing some Brazilian Zook Jack and Jills. And yeah. that's why I've been getting my feet wet with the Brazilian Zook. So it's been nice to kind of like see the questions that get asked, the live videos and things of that nature. And then just seeing content being created in the dance scene that's not a dance demo. You know, that is something that's like, yes, we need more intellectual dance content that's being created. Because the media is there, the platform is there. Um, we just got to put in the work to put out that content, you know? 
And I think right. not to not to take anything away from hosting dance videos, but I feel like there's so much to the dancing outside of just actual dancing that we can use to kind of grow richer communities, you know? Yeah, man, there, there's there is space for everybody. You know, if you like mm-hmm. to pump out dance videos every day, there is a space for you. If you like to have mm-hmm. a conversation every day, there's a space for you. So just never mm-hmm. limit yourself because you don't see it in the market. The fact that mm-hmm. you don't see it in the market might be the fact that you should do it because nobody's done it. You yeah, know, exactly. <laughs> and that that's 100%. the idea for Zuki Nerds, you know, like I was like, man, I haven't seen anything similar like that. I know it's going to be a lot of work and, you know, like. We, we do this out of passion, once again, like Brzuki, mm-hmm. uh, Zook Nerds, or even the international Zook Flash Mob that I've been running now mm-hmm. for 10 years. Uh, it's yeah. all like passion projects because I want the scene, the, the, the dance community to be touching more and more people. So mm-hmm. that, makes us, that makes me feel like I don't work any day. That's awesome. It's all for passion. I think what I'd like to do to steer us into the end of the podcast Uh, We've used the word nerd quite a bit on this podcast, so (laughs) I'm curious to hear, like, when did you realize you were a nerd about the dance? I know before when you mentioned when you were teaching, you mentioned falling in love with like the process and the studying and all that aspect of it. Was was this something that you were nerdy when you were earlier as a kid and then just became an adult? Um, I'm curious. You're life in a nutshell as a as what we consider to be a nerd now i love that i'm gonna have to answer this question because i've i've asked that same question to so many of my guests in my podcast (laughs) (laughs) and i was never asked that question back so Mm -hmm. let me do this for the first time uh well i always knew i was an awkward young person Mm -hmm. i I wouldn't consider myself a nerd because I was never top of the class, Mm -hmm. but I knew I learned things, my brain learned things very fast if I was interested. Exactly. I bombed bombed English for 12 years because I did not like English Mm -hmm. in Brazil. And then I moved to Australia to learn English, you know, go figure. Mm -hmm. But Brazil, uh, uh, English, I didn't study properly. Uh, I didn't study like biology, geography, history. Yeah, I hear you. But chemistry, physics, maths, uh, geometry, uh, all of those things, numbers. Numbers was always my gem. Mm. And then when I went to uh, year seven and eight in Brazil, uh, in my, my school, they had a project for entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. for like the government uh, my, my city is basically a very tech city but there mm-hmm. wasn't enough qualified people so what the, the tech companies started doing is investing in projects in the local schools and giving them like sponsored projects for school for kids to come after class mm-hmm. and do some courses on entrepreneurship or even coding or mm-hmm. anything like that so I jumped on the on the admin business bandwagon since I was like on year seven, eight, and then nine, mm-hmm. 10, 11, 12, I did diplomas. I did like three diplomas in business, commerce, and things like that. So I always had that mentality of like, man, I want to be an accountant or a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was a nerd, but not in dance, not in dance, because I always, for the, my first many years, I thought, you know, I, I'm not nerd. I'm not even good enough in dance. Mm-hmm. But then once I started teaching dance, people were like, I 
love your classes. You break things down like nobody breaks. Mm -hmm. you, you, you just like explain things and you, you answer to questions that in a, in a way that I've never seen anybody answer to questions. And mm -hmm. I just love you because of that. And then after many, many years, I started understanding that that was my strength. I wasn't mm. going to be the super flashiest, you know, uh, mm. dancer that everybody watches every day. But I was going to be that person that can break things down. That person that can, you know, if nobody can help you, give me a chance. I'm going to try <laughs> my best. And hopefully I can be that person that can help you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it took me a few years to actually believe in myself and understand that that was my strength and that I had something to offer. And I guess on that note... It's important to, for people who are out there, either as a social dancer or a dance teacher or an organizer, promoter, whatever, that there's always a space for you in the market. You don't have to do what the mainstream millions mm -hmm. of views people are doing because mm -hmm. you could just be, you could be reaching out to the underserved market. Like, for example, dance. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This is... This is where I thrived. You know, I, mm -hmm. I don't thrive on the flashy, but I thrive on the mechanical, the technical, the methodical. Exactly. The, the, all, most of my students are like people who have that same mm -hmm. vi vibration, you know, like analytical brain, mm -hmm. analytical brain. Exactly. And when I, you know, when I meet a nerd, we just get along. We don't even know. If, <laughs> we don't even know. We may not know that the other person is a nerd. We find out maybe mm -hmm. in the conversation. But as mm -hmm. soon as we find out that we each other nerd, we're like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, of course. That's why we get along. <laughs> <You know>? mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. People often think that because we're dancers, we can't be nerds. Oh, we are all artistic. I don't know. Yeah, my dancing definitely. came through a lot of analytics mm -hmm. and a lot of, um, a lot of like actually brain to body, not body to brain. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's my so entire dance career. You, <laughs> hearing you speak, really almost feels like my dance journey oh, i was definitely awesome. the awkward kid growing mm. up awkward around girls mm -hmm. and didn't have my voice and all that kind of stuff but i knew that like at an early age even my parents knew like i was very quick to like learn things that i was interested in you know yeah uh, if i wasn't interested in it then i didn't care about it you know and then in the urban kids world, I started teaching and I didn't even know I liked teaching, but one lady gave me an opportunity to start teaching Kizomba. And then I started breaking things down. And I was like, wait a minute, like there's so many different avenues of how you can explain things and weight transfers and postures and what part of the foot touches the ground and what do you need to drill to like find out the common steps in like the dominant foot versus the weak foot and all yeah. kinds of things. Um, my whole level up my Saeedas, I'm putting out a series of videos called Level Up Your Saeedas, and I'm going yeah. into the, all this nerdy numbering structure of musical counts versus sequence versus tempos, because I feel like sometimes in dance classes, instructors just throw out numbers, but like you yeah. have to be very intentional about the numbers that you're using and what are you referring to uh, in that class. And like you said before, having that confidence of, hey, I don't have the video that has 10 million views, but I'm going to fucking break down shit. And now, since I have the video animation skills, now yeah. I'm like diagramming <laughs> my nerdiness into Nobody it. Nobody can um, hold you. 
and now I feel very inspired. And so now like I'm starting like an intellectual dancer newsletter. I start the intellectual dancers guild discord server. And I just feel very inspired uh, to embrace my nerdiness more so. So yeah, that's awesome that you also had like a similar journey because yeah, there's totally. definitely a space for, for us in the dance scene to break down those things, you know? You know, I grew up with a mentality that, you know, if you're not just a natural born dancer, then, you know, you're, not, you're never going to make it. And that, mm. that's what I believed. I believed for a good seven or eight years. But hopefully, you know, with the work that we're doing, we are going to break that uh, idea very early mm. on for anybody who is out there. And they already have these early thoughts of, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I, I just, I was not born in Brazil. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, my, my, all my dance partners are not Brazilians, exactly. you know, and they are as good as Brazilians. And in some ways they have some things that Brazilians don't have. So mm -hmm. you don't have to be a Brazilian person to be that, to be like a Zook star. There are many out there in the world that are not uh, you don't have to be this natural dancer or somebody who did ballet the entire life. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be somebody who grew up with dancing since you were young in your household. You just got to be mm -hmm. you and find how you can bring something to the community that can be valuable. Exactly. If you do that, beautiful. you got a place. You got a place to mm -hmm. be. That's awesome, man. I'm so glad we did this podcast together. I Me knew too. like in my spirit, I need to look at, I need to, to, to message this guy <laughs> and do a podcast when I saw that, oh, he's the one that's doing Zook Nerds. Okay. We got to, we got to, we got to connect, compare notes and connect. So <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I think we're getting close to an hour and a half. So I don't want to get <laughs> that's it awesome. too long, um, yeah. but I know we can definitely potentially have a podcast in the future. So oh, yes, we will please. If people are interested in reaching you, uh, what is the best way for them to do that? And do you have anything that you want to promote to out to the world? Uh, also, let us know. Well, I mean, like if you just want to reach me, I think the best way is either Facebook or Instagram. You can look up for Alison Sanji. A L I S O N, not double L and one S. That's the English spelling. <laughs> so the Brazilian spelling. A L I S O N. S-A-N-D-I, Sanji or Sandy, if you want to call mm -hmm. it that way. But if you want to say it like I say, Alison Sanji. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, Instagram, Facebook. And I mean, my Brazuki event is going worldwide once things open up. Hopefully, I, mm -hmm. I'm going to do one in the US. I'm going to do one in China, one in Australia. Uh, so please check brazuki.com. B-R-A-Z-O-U-K-Y. Brazuki.com. And please join us at the Zook Nerds. So mm -hmm. Zook Nerds is the place uh, to either learn more about Zook or, you know, just share your experience with Zook and hopefully learn some too. So Definitely. those are the I'll places. Put all those, um, I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can find them there and Thank it'll you. be easy for them to access. And once again, from one fellow nerd to another, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed <laughs> our conversation learning some new things about you and just about culture and history and dance and dance nerds in the dance scene and different dance scenes that are still able to connect which is also pretty cool so uh thanks so much for being a part of the show and i hope you have a wonderful rest of your day thank you and i'm looking forward to chatting you once again very soon thank you for checking out the dance your heart on fire podcast today 
be sure to check out neokizomba.com for links to everything that we chatted about today, as well as some awesome free resources to enhance your Kizomba journey. Thank you.